Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to our first week of Life on the Line. To kick off the podcast this week, we had a conversation with Sandy McGregor. Sandy is a veteran of Vietnam and was the first non-communist soldier out of all the Australian, American and other troops in Vietnam to explore the underground tunnels used extensively by the Viet Cong. I'm Angus Horton and I'm speaking today with Sandy McGregor. Sandy, thanks for coming in and talking with us today. It's great. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Sandy, you were born in 1940. What was it like growing up with the legacy of World War II in the past? I enjoyed my childhood. I enjoyed growing up. My dad was uh, in the British Army and then the Indian Army. During the Second World War, I was, in fact, in India. Later on, it was uh, Dad spoke to me about it. It was good to have my forebears there. He spoke a lot about his his father, uh, who was in Omdurman and Khartoum and, and a great engineer. All our forebears are in the core of engineers, right back to my great-great-grandfather. Really, your family's been at war or been at service in war for, for, for decades That's and right. years. Yes. That's right, yes. There was no other place I could go to but the Corps of Engineers. <laughs> your early school days, they were in India? Uh, early school days were. I was in um, a place called Sanaa, and Sanaa was a, a boarding school up in the mountains, up near, uh, well, it's near Pakistan border now. And when India gained their independence, and, of course, there was separation between Pakistan and India, there was a great deal of fighting going on. And I witnessed uh, trucks being rolled down mountainsides and this sort of thing when I was seven years old. And then we came back. uh, I came back on a train from uh, Sanaa. I was by myself, uh, and it was hundreds of miles. When I arrived at the station in Delhi, my parents were really, really upset because they had just been told about uh, the previous train that had left Delhi going north ended up with 500 heads on it. They were Muslims going to Lahore. So that was during the post-war fighting between India and Pakistan. That's right. And yes. how... Um, they were both, you know, literally at civil war, killing each other. That's exactly wow. right. Yeah. And you, as yeah. and you, as a young boy, is caught up in the <laughs> middle of that and escaped. That's uh, right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, when do you leave India and come to Australia? We left India in um, January 1948. We went through um, Western Australia first of all, then Melbourne, and then down to Hobart. All by ship. We came out on the hospital ship called the Asturias. How did you find settling into Australia compared to India? Oh, I found it exciting. I can remember one of my first uh, 
things that I did that indelibly in my mind, we were going for a walk uh, in La Trobe uh, in the northern part of Tasmania. And uh, I bent down to pick up this beautiful piece of brown leather that I thought was... Uh, and it scuttled away from me. And, of course, it was a brown snake. So how does a boy who's living in such a beautiful part of the world in tranquil Tasmania then get transformed and is serving overseas in Vietnam. Tell us about the step in between. Well, I went to uh, school in Alveston and then I went to high school in Devonport, back to do my final year in Alveston. And all the time I was in Devonport High School and Alveston High School, I was in the Army Cadets. So... uh, I enjoyed the Army Cadets. I was the uh, the head guy in, in, in the Alveston Cadets. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, the shooting component, the range component, the discipline. And, of course, I was encouraged by my dad. After I had finished the exams, the matriculation was called then, I had heard about Duntroon and wanted to go there. My dad encouraged me to go to do engineering at university first. I'm not really sure why, but maybe education was something that he didn't have a lot of. Uh, he wanted me to do that, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> and then went to went to uh, do my entrance examinations for Duntroon. I know that uh, my first one was in Melbourne and I had my first ride on an aeroplane across to Melbourne from Tasmania. And that was really exciting too. <laughs> there were six of us on the um, group that was being interviewed and five of us got through. And we went there on the 9th of February 1957. So being in Duntroon, tell us about your experiences there. The beginning of Duntroon was tough. You really needed your friends around you who were, of course, your own class. You didn't fraternise with the class above. The first class was, oh, boy, they were <laughs> they were like kings. <laughs> we had a lot of education going on. The other great thing that, that was going on all the time was sport, sport and fitness and team games. So the first year was tough, but it was good. It was really good. I know the Army puts a lot of importance, as you say, on team games and building that camaraderie. Yes. And all these sports like rugby and and cricket and and the games that you would play together, I mean, they really do have a purpose in in getting you to act as a unit. Yes. Because later, as you find out in battle, you're fighting as a unit. No doubt about that, Angus. Uh, Later on, what becomes very, very important for the individual soldier is to have a mate so that you've always got a a group of two or a group of four or a group of eight in a section always looking after each other. Tell us about your first posting. That was to 17 Construction Squadron. And in fact, the three of us that went to uh, university together all were posted to 17 Construction Squadron. I was posted to 10 Troop Commanders. That was my first command of soldiers and I had 40-odd soldiers. So, of course, you're now learning to deal with soldiers. Uh, of course, you'd had some practice coming through, but it was not dealing with uh, the, the real soldier. It was dealing with each other. So 10 troop commander, and then within six months, the whole unit, 17 construction squadron, were going to New Guinea. So we went to New Guinea with 17 construction squadron, and we were posted to WIWAC, 
And being posted to WIRAC, we had a road to build, which was we were replacing another engineer unit called 21 Construction Squadron. We we built this uh, road, WIRAC, Marprick, Lumi Road, and our base was in WIRAC. Uh, halfway through the tour of 12 months, the major part of the squadron went forward to another base because the road was like 10 mile long at this stage, right? And when they went forward, I was given uh, almost like an independent command. I was back in in, in, in WIWAC and uh, I had, uh, as the troop commander there with my soldiers, I had jobs of um, the One Point Bridge. We had to build a, a bridge in the middle of nowhere across to One Point. That was one job that was just fantastic. The other one was maintenance of the road, uh, electrical reticulation. We had all sorts of building houses, uh, reti- you know, work. From there, I took half my troop up to build a wharf up in Vonimo, which was near the border, only seven miles from the border of what Indonesia had just annexed as uh, uh, West New Guinea. Of course, there were people coming across through Wanamo to get back into the Australian part of uh, of there. And there were a lot of guys that were coming that way. And this wharf was a 300-tonne shipping wharf. And we had to drive piles and make it. I mean, you can imagine uh, it was just a, a wonderful job for a young engineer to do. Sandy, leaving New Guinea, can we move towards the um, action that you saw in Vietnam, how you were drawn into that. The task of 173rd Airborne Brigade was to defend the airbase at Binh Hoa. Binh Hoa is, in fact, 30 kilometres north of Saigon. So it was a very big airbase. Another main role was the reaction force for the third core area of Vietnam. That area there, which is about 300 mile by 250 mile, if there was anything going on in that area of the Third Corps, it was the job of 173rd Airborne Brigade to react to it. So if there was enemy that they were being told about conducting some, you know, taking a village or 173rd would react to it with things like um, going out on APCs, armoured personnel carriers, and also Hueys, which were the helicopters, which can take six soldiers and two pilots, right, or the gunner as well. But uh, when one RAR was going out with the brigade, there were many, many instances of them not having the individual support that they needed of things like engineers to do things, jobs such as booby traps, unexploded bombs, and tunnels, and they didn't have that capacity with them. They thought they would get the capacity from 173rd Airborne Brigade, but they didn't. So in September uh, or in August, I was given the job, and I was back now in a field squadron in Brisbane and as a troop commander, but I was a captain now, right? And and I uh, was given the job to raise three field troop to train them and to go and support one RAR. So it was a fantastic job. It's a job you give your eye teeth for, you know. Uh, I focused for about four or five weeks on 
training these guys as they were coming in, mainly in fitness, to get to Vietnam, knowing that our major main job was going to be unexploded bombs, booby traps and tunnels, but then all the other different sort of engineering tasks that we always do, things like uh, building uh, roads, building water points, uh, doing things like uh, construction of kitchens and toilets and you know, all those sort of things that you need in your base camp, which one RAR had not got yet. When we went there, we were given a little piece of ground that we was on the edge of the perimeter of 173rd Airborne Brigade, not far from 1RAR. It was all swamp. <laughs> so, so we had to drain it first before we could then build on it and do all those sort of things. We, we went ahead and established water points, we, giving as much support as we could. And then we went out on our first operation as observers in October. Uh, second operation, I took 17 guys with me and that was where we came across our first tunnel. Can you tell us about your first exposure with the tunnels? One of the companies found a tunnel entrance. They were clearing a, a village. I have a feeling that the village was abandoned uh, at that stage. So it was then a new job for us because here was this hole in the ground that uh, we thought, right, this is our job. And of course, I'd found out a little bit about the tunnels before that, but not a lot. We'd never, ever searched tunnels before. We never knew anything about them. It went straight down, so I thought, right, I'm going down this tunnel. And so I, I got my staff sergeant, who was with me, tie a rope around my feet, and I went head first down the tunnels. I armed myself with a, a pistol, a bayonet. The bayonet is to look around for booby traps. And, of course, I needed a light. So the first thing I realised was I needed three hands or we needed a light on our forehead, which... At the end of this operation, we got uh, from BHP because we got those miners' light, so that then the front person in every um, tunnel can have a pistol in one hand and a bayonet uh, in the other. The bayonet's got to look for booby traps. We don't know what's down there. And the tunnels are never straight. They go up and down. They never went straight for more than about five metres. And this particular tunnel was about 60 metres long. I called in somebody after me for this particular tunnel and we went through the length of it and we came out underneath a hut and the tunnel was quite a big tunnel too. I mean I'm a fairly big bloke so you know it was it was quite easy for me to go on my hands and knees. So Sandy for the record yes. Yes. how tall are you? I, I'm 6'2". And, and how many kilos would you have been then? Uh, about 90. Okay so yeah. you're, you, you, you're not sort of a slim little halfback sort of thing. <laughs> no, I'm you, the second rower. You, you, you're a pretty solid second <laughs> rower, yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. And, that's and right. Sandy, um, had you ever been in a tunnel before? Never, never. Had no. you ever experienced claustrophobic um, experiences in the past? No, no, I, I wasn't claustrophobic um, and I'm glad I wasn't. Um, I went down this tunnel because I basically knew that I could not ask any of my soldiers to do anything that I wouldn't do. So I couldn't send somebody else down the tunnel first. We'd never been down them, so it was up to me to lead the way. I mean, I was the one that was wearing three pips uh, as a captain and I needed to be able to do this. So That was and, for danger money, I'm assuming. Well, <laughs> you know what, it was only a dollar a day. Yeah. 
That's all we got. You worked hard for it. <laughs> in Afghanistan, they got more than 200 bucks a day. Yeah, it was very different and no tax. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 can, I can't imagine, but just that snap second when you see the tunnel, yes. all the men are looking at you, yes. you're looking at the tunnel, yes. and you have to make the decision, you make the right decision yes. in hindsight to go. It's a pretty ballsy call. You to- I mean, if you're dropping down into the black abyss, you don't even have the BHP light at that stage. You can't see mm. where the hell you're going. Mm. Oh, we had a torch. <laughs> Little hand. Well, how did you hold the torch and the, and the pistol and the bayonet? I couldn't. It was yeah. impossible. So yeah. I had to do one thing at a time. Yeah. I had to put the pistol yeah. down and use the bayonet because the, the booby traps were more important. And did you encounter any booby traps? Uh, in, no, on that tunnel? No, not on that tunnel. So that all. was a clear no, tunnel, luckily. Clear tunnel, fairly big tunnel. It was yeah. what I would describe as an escape tunnel. See, what would happen normally is that the village hut would be surrounded. There would have been a VC in the village hut and he would have gone down the tunnel to escape quickly, coming up 50, 60 metres away so that he would be outside the perimeter that was around the hut. That's the idea of the escape tunnel. There are three kinds of tunnels. One's an escape tunnel, one's fighting tunnels, and the other one's really just protection tunnels, like under houses, you know, those sort of things. And this protection with respect is for the Allied bombing, you know, how the that's Americans exactly would right. carpet yeah. bomb an area. Yes, and, yes. Um, and that's how they would protect themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. The next thing for me to do was to get my soldiers to go through that tunnel. But then I started to think, what if there were enemy down there? How would we get the enemy out? We couldn't get them out, you know, by, by going down straight after them and shooting them because down there the enemy has got the advantage. They know the tunnel. So what we had to do was think of another way and we have been trained with things like tear gas. Now tear gas is an awful thing. It really does make you cry and it stings. What we did then was we thought, okay, well, let's blow tear gas through the tunnel. That'll get rid of the enemy. When we go down, we'll try and blow the tear gas out and we'll also wear tear gas masks. So that's what we did from then on. After this particular operation, I came back uh, to our base camp and we built a tunnel system in our base camp so that we could get all our soldiers used to going down into tunnels. If there was anyone who had claustrophobia, I never made them go in. There were only two or three in our troop that didn't. And they went through the tunnels and we used tear gas so that they could get, they knew the feeling of it because it's, it's pretty challenging. It's a pretty challenging job. I also conversed with what the Americans did. We found out that the American engineers basically dropped smoke bombs down the entrances and then they got what they call a mighty mite which is a an air blower so they'd blow the air with the smoke and if the smoke came up around the place you'd see that there were other exits so they could be investigated as well that seemed to be a pretty logical way to go about it and our next operation was nothing to do with with tunnels. We didn't get back to tunnels until after we went across to the Cambodian border. Can you tell us about Operation New Life in the following month of November and December 65? Yes, yes. 
Operation New Life was a very big operation. We were on this operation for nearly, I can't remember now whether it was four weeks or six weeks, but it was a long operation. The idea of this operation was that we would go up there, open the road, our job, three field troops job, was to open the road for a division of Arvin, that's the Army Republic Vietnam, to come through. So our job was to open the road, make sure all the bridges were right and 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 cleared and and all booby traps cleared and mines cleared, all that sort of stuff. But the idea of this whole operation was we were going up into an area called the Rice Bowl. It was the fifth biggest rice-producing area in the world, I understand, at that time. And what happens was that when the local population produced rice, the VC move in and they take rice away. You know, just digressing... We found so many rice caches uh, in in uh, in the jungles, and there'd be twenty ton, ten ton, fifteen ton of rice and rice bags of rice. We had to destroy that rice or get it brought back to to base, and 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 you know that meant that we had to handle rice bags. And then guess what? We found booby traps. Yeah. Now, we were lucky in the first booby trap we found, didn't go off, just went pop. So then then had to get our mine detectors and find the booby traps that were in the bags of rice. We never, ever found out how the Viet Cong knew which had booby traps in and which didn't. We didn't ever know, but we found a number of uh, booby traps in rice bags. So... Protecting the rice harvest on this particular new life operation was really important. On this particular operation, we had to build uh, two or three little bridges. We had to cut down trees for artillery. We we came across a number of booby traps in the road, mines that were set in the road. All the time we were coming across new types of booby traps because booby traps, unexploded bombs were things that we had to deal with all the time. And we had to learn how to deal with those because we didn't know the enemy, Russian uh, stuff, Chinese stuff, Vietnamese stuff. We didn't we didn't know about it. We had to learn about it. So we then established what we call a, a mines museum so that we could put all the infantry through that to recognise the booby traps that we had found. Sandy, with all the dangerous work you're doing with the mines and, and clearing booby traps in food and everywhere else. When did you encounter your first enemy yourself in one of these positions? We were shot at when we went to um, the Cambodian border. That was the next operation after this, actually. We saw enemy. We uh, heard them firing. We heard the infantry firing at them. But we as engineers, you know, we're not really up there with them. And that changed eventually. Initially, the the only enemy that we would uh, see was the enemy that was uh, 100 metres, 200 metres, 300 metres away, and the infantry were dealing with them. So it wasn't a, a personal challenge at that stage. In the uh, operation that we went on to the Cambodian border, that was really interesting because what happened over there was that um, we had APCs which were actually being bogged and... <laughs> It was the engineer's task to get them out of the bog. <laughs> so that, the very first one, we actually got a Chinook helicopter and a, and a, and a dozer rope to pull the first uh, APC out. Then we used that APC and engineers 
working in swamp up to our waists to be able to get the next APC out. Then we use those two APCs to get the third and the fourth and the fifth and that's went on. Very uncomfortable night because we, we had to spend our, our time in the water all night. And, and uh, you probably had some clear dialogue with the drivers of those ABCs <laughs> to, to, to well, avoid the bogs in well, future. Well, you see, what they were doing, they, they went along and they came across like a big tank ditch and couldn't go across it. Once they stopped travelling forward, gurgle, 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 they went down, <laughs> yeah. But uh, prior to that, I was on battalion headquarters and most of my guys were on battalion headquarters and that changed ultimately. But the battalion headquarters doesn't normally come under fire. In this particular occasion, it did, right? On the crimp operation, which is the next operation, we were under fire from the minute we got there uh, with things like uh, artillery and uh, mortars, yeah. That was when we were landing. Uh, so it was it was a hot landing, really. Later on, just to continue to answer your question about enemy, the only time that we uh, then, on a personal basis, was that when we had to make a decision, or I had to make a decision, as to whether we blow up a particular tunnel that we knew there was enemy in, because we could hear them, but they wouldn't come out, so we blew them up. Uh, blew up the hole. And, and would you use grenades or just no, no, dynamite? explosive, yeah. explosive dynamite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I didn't really come into a firefight with uh, with with enemy. We had to go down tunnels that had enemy in them, but we used tear gas to get out of them. So from this operation uh, in 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 Cambodia. We were immediately given orders that we were going into the crimp operation. And the reason that was done that way was so that the Arvin headquarters, the Army Republic Vietnam, which had spies in it, were not asked and were not told about this particular operation so that we could get into this operation without any warning been given to the Viet Cong that we were coming. So when we flew into this operation um, and we were going into the to the uh, LZ, uh, this is by helicopter, and that was when we were being mortared and artillery and all the rest of it. And so we knew there was something up. A company was in front of us, but then battalion headquarters was going in. And, of course, my guys all working within battalion headquarters. We had our role there. Gradually, that had to change. When the battalion is out doing a clearance of their tactical area of responsibility, then you would get companies who would be 600 metres, 1,000 metres away from battalion headquarters. Now, if they were in the bush clearing the area, it would be a pretty slow and painstaking task. Now, if they came across a booby trap, then... The whole of the company has to stop. Now, if you had to then get engineers forward, it would take an hour or two, you know, to get to get up there. And that wasn't a really good solution. So what we what we came up with, and this was a very, very difficult decision for me to make, was I put a combat engineer team with each company headquarters. So there were four engineers in each company headquarters. Now, what I'm doing now is going against a principle of the way engineers function, and that is dissipation of engineer effort. So that team of four 
then had to go out to the platoons because it was the forward scout of the platoon that would find the booby trap. So how long would that take? Then it'd take another hour, right, to get out. So eventually you can see that the best way of operating was to putting a splinter team, we call them splinter teams, two sappers, a number one and a number two, always work in pairs, out with the platoon headquarters of each of the platoons, the three platoons in a company, and the corporal on company headquarters. So we basically had a section of seven guys with each company. And that splinter team was the team that could be straight out to where their booby trap was. Now, where there's one booby trap, there's always more. And where there's more, they're defending something. It could be a bunker system. It could be uh, the rice cache. It could be, you know, all sorts of things, footpaths. Then what's got to happen is that the engineers have got to go even in front of the forward scout. So the engineers now are leading the infantry. They're being protected by the forward scout, but they're clearing booby traps. This system of splinter teams in Afghanistan, this is exactly the same way they worked, right, these mini teams. And then even after that, and during Afghanistan, they worked with the commandos and they worked with the SAS. So today we've actually established what we call the SOER, Special Operations Engineer Regiment, to train with the commandos out at Holdsworthy and they're out with the SAS. So this whole thing which started in, in Vietnam with us right, has now pervaded the army and this is the way we operate with engineers. And it's become such uh, that the catch cry for engineers has now follow the sapper. And that came from infantry. I can see how um, your engineers in the field would expedite clearing an area. Yes. Um, and that would enable you to take advantage of the ground before the enemy could reinforce it. Um, but I can imagine you would start to, to take some casualties because of that. Um, yes. and, and perhaps if it wasn't immediate, it would certainly be in other areas. Um, were you finding that your men were taking hits? Yes. We, we had uh, uh, booby traps that would sometimes go off that were not cleared by our boys. We were actually being hit by uh, sometimes mines or IEDs. And I suppose about seven or eight of my guys were wounded in this way, uh, um, working with working with uh, mainly booby traps. And, and I imagine that there would have been more pressure with the infantry wanting to push forward, so that pushes more pressure on the engineers yes. to, to, to clear the obstacles quicker, so yeah. with more obstacles, less time, more pressure, things yeah. happen. Yep, that's yeah. right. We had, uh, in that one tour, after we went into Nui Dat, we had some troops lose up to eight guys in a tour and 20-odd wounded. They, they really, really took the most casualties. But in Vietnam, when you look at it from the point of view of... Uh, percentage numbers of people who were in theatre. 
it was these these boys. Uh, they did a magnificent job, and they were they were trained well. But you know, some of these jumping jack mines were a real problem. And and all your boys were volunteers. All of mine were the next wave of engineers that came through. They had national servicemen who also were volunteers. Yeah, they'd right? elected to join your they, corps, which was yeah, more hazardous at that absolutely, stage. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I can tell you that the quality of the army increased. It was better as a result of having those national service boys. To give you an idea just about education, I only had two guys in my whole troop that had matriculation, uh, my corporal and the guy I used for radio operator. Later on, all the national servicemen had matriculation. We were on this operation, I think it was called Marauder, in, and we came in then to the crimp operations in the Iron Triangle and Hobo Woods. The role of the whole operation was to find the main tunnel headquarters. When we landed, as I told you, we landed in, in an area, we were being fired upon us straight away. Within an hour or so, two guys were shot and wounded and two more guys were then killed. And the infantry did not know where the shots had come from. So as a result of that, what they had to do was they had to clear the area in front of them. And in clearing the area in front of them, they found this, um, it looked for all the world like an anthill, but it was a bunker because there was a slit in the bunker. And that's where the shots had come from. So that's when they called the engineers. That's when they called in my troop. We went to this thing. The infantry had already dropped a grenade down inside. We knew it was hollow inside. So what we did was we blew it in. And after we blew it in, we could then see stairs going down and a very small tunnel going away from it. And that was the beginning of searching the tunnel. Now, we knew, of course, the enemy were in there, right, because we'd had two guys killed, two guys wounded. So our next step then was to get the Mighty Might up to blow in smoke, and after we blew in smoke, we then blew in tear gas. Tear gas, remember, was to get the enemy out. The smoke was to show other entrances. We found an entrance um, only about 20 metres away. It had 17 booby traps connected to the trapdoor where they came up. So what we learned immediately was don't open the bloody trapdoors when you, when you find them. Look for booby traps, you know. We blew air into the uh, whole system. Uh, but what happens when smoke burns and burns up the oxygen, two things are formed, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Now, the carbon monoxide, of course, is poisonous. That's lighter than air. So that would be pushed through. But carbon dioxide is heavier than air. So it wasn't pushed through. I never did all this analysis first, right? But now I know. So then what happened was that I called for the smallest guys in the troop to volunteer to go down the tunnel. Called for volunteers. I called for volunteers. I called for volunteers, yeah. This is a dangerous job. I mean, you've got enemy who were down there and they've got to go down there. Now the light's on the head. They've got a pistol. They've got a, uh, a bayonet called booby traps. We didn't expect a lot of booby traps in the tunnels because the enemy were already in there, but they could rig up a couple of quick ones, you know. So the first couple of guys go go down. We've got our operation so that the second guy is always talking to me on the telephone. So a line follows him and that line has got to be pulled through all the time. He is in front of the number one guy who is actually doing 
the main searching. Then what we found after they'd gone, we, we'd already had feedback that they were zigzagging, right, the tunnels. We had the feedback that they couldn't pass each other because they were so small. They were crawling sometimes on their stomach through these tunnels. They couldn't pass each other. Then the next thing that happened was that the front guy, he flaked. He fl- absolutely flaked. He, in other words, he went unconscious. And we don't know why at this stage, why he's gone unconscious, right? It was later on shown that it was lack of air. So despite the amount of air that we'd blown through with the uh, Mighty Might, it wasn't enough to get rid of that carbon dioxide. So um, he couldn't breathe. So now we had a situation to get him out. And the only way we could get him out was to tie a rope around his legs and drag him back. But the second guy was also being affected. So he came out, sent another guy in to help pull back this first fellow. But we couldn't get past him to push him back. So we had to pull him back and pull him back all the way out of the tunnel. They recovered. You get two more blokes to go in. They also flaked. And two more. They also flaked. So this happened in the first, you know, the first day of searching. And uh, I thought, my God, this is smoke. We've caused our own situation, smoke. The Americans, I thought they'd gone down the tunnels to search them. But that showed me that they hadn't gone down the tunnels ever to uh, search the tunnels out back in 173rd Airborne Brigade anyway, uh, because they would also know that they can't get rid of all the smoke. We never used smoke again. But one of our problems was that there were tunnels with each company. I had uh, these demolition teams, remember, with each company. So these boys found tunnels. Mighty Might had blown down smoke down them, right, the same Mighty Might that we used. Corporal Botel, he pushed himself through a uh, narrow trapdoor. It went down at 45 degrees and there was a big room that was dug out in the ground there. So he went through there and he he's a tall, slim guy and he pushed himself through. He started struggling for air, couldn't breathe properly. We had the mighty might blowing more air in, can't. You've got this carbon dioxide, which is heavier than air. It was in a, a room that was a dead end. The entrance to it was narrow. So the small guys, once again, went in and to try and get an unconscious body back through a small, narrow area, couldn't get it. A couple of infantry guys went in and tried to help us. And they couldn't push him out either. So nobody could. And, of course, our own blokes that were down in the hole trying to push him up, they were also being affected by air and they had to get out as quick as they could. So this was a, this was a real battle and, uh, unfortunately, when we ultimately had to dig out Botel, but he died and he died basically of asphyxiation. And um, he was the first sapper that was killed. And, and, Sandy, as you were saying, the Americans weren't treating the tunnels with the respect that you, the Australian troops, were. Yeah. So, Sandy, tell us about this press conference where you earned the nickname <laughs> The Tunnel Rat. Yeah, that was really interesting. I I was called to a press conference with my CO and uh, when I went there, all these guys are firing questions at you, you know. They're, they're, and, and, of course, 
they mainly want to talk about tunnels. So I was loving it, really. I was answering all these questions and, and it was really, really interesting. And uh, he said, so he said, so what do you call yourself? I said, oh, we call ourselves the ferrets. He said, what's a ferret? He said, and, and uh, so I told him what the ferret was. He said, oh, you mean the ferret's like, like a rat, like a rat. I know what it is. You're tunnel rats. And it was somebody from that audience that actually named us the tunnel rats. And what was really interesting after that, General Westmoreland, uh, he, he picked up on it. He issued uh, an order, an edict, basically, saying that from now on we will search out all the tunnels because they realised just how much uh, equipment was down there and uh, how much intelligence was there. And so he called us tunnel rats and, in fact, the tunnel rats were born. Uh, and then after that, they actually developed new equipment, smaller wire, pistols that had uh, silencers on, you know, those sort of things. One of our guys down, the t down this particular tunnel, he saw these two eyes looking at him and he put five bullets into it. It was a dog. <laughs> now, Sandy, for all your service... You're recognised with the Military Cross and indeed the Americans recognise you with the Bronze Star. And Sandy, when you're in Vietnam, of course, the famous Battle of Long Tan happens. As three field troop, we not only had to clear all the bloody sand hills and all those sort of things to make ALSG, we then were the first into Nui Dat along with the battalion. Now this battalion that was there was clearing all the areas with patrols, but we were given the task of water points, roads, you know, all this sort of thing. Now, we knew that there'd been half a dozen enemy killed in this area prior to us getting there. And I said to the, uh, uh, the commander, I said, where's my, where's my intimate support? <laughs> he said, you have to protect yourself. Of these guys that were up there, we, we had to have graders working, dozers working, you know, making roads, making... And for every grader that's operating, we had to actually have guys in the field with uh, weapons to protect the greater operator and all that sort of thing. And when we went at night time, we went to this particular spot. We went around the water point that we found and were building and uh, it was right on the edge of a clearing. And we put wire around, we put uh, claymore mines around. We, had, we, we were acting as infantry. We even put out patrols, cleared patrols, and we put out a standing patrol. Right? At night, we knew the enemy were out there. In fact, the enemy were coming in, shaking the wire. One night, one of the claymores had actually been turned around the other way and facing us. So thank goodness we didn't fire any. I would definitely say that this was the most dangerous time that I've spent in, in Vietnam, this, this two or three weeks right, uh, that we had there. And then when uh, Long Tan came, now, we were mortared in the position of three-field troop where we were before. That area was mortared because that's what the enemy had surveyed. That's what they had actually looked at. And later on, we know that that's the direction of attack, of the regimental attack, was going to come up through this particular area that we lived in onto the uh, task force headquarters which was up behind us. Thank goodness that, that didn't happen. At this particular stage, when uh, when our guys were being mortared, I had half the troop out with me on another operation up north. Uh, Longtown was south of the base. All I could hear was that we'd had four or five guys wounded. 
But one of one of a really good mate of mine was uh, the other troop commander. He lost both his legs uh, in that particular operation. Yeah, so that wasn't wasn't good. But that's what uh, that's what happened. Sandy, your service in Vietnam comes to an end. You return to Australia. When you came home, and even to today, do you have flashbacks or sleepless nights thinking of being in those tunnels and those dark places? Sometimes I, I have dreams, and I do have dreams about being in tunnels. Not those tunnels. I sometimes have dreams of of uh, screams in tunnels, and that, to me, goes back to when we had to blow up those that other area. So I do. It does happen. Every now and again. It's happening less and less, but it does happen. Some of the boys have got much, much worse experience than mine. Has going back to Vietnam each year helped you with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love my trips back to Vietnam. I've gone to all these areas. I've gone to the tunnels. Yeah, the, the Kuchi Tunnels now is the fifth biggest tourist destination in Vietnam. The, the Kuchi Tunnels now... Uh, not the ones that we went down because we blew them up. So the one that's there now is about the sixth and seventh that were built during the time of Vietnam. Yeah, and I've been quite... through those tunnels, and yeah. and I would testify the fact that it's a very popular tourist yeah. um, attraction. I, I think what makes it so vivid for me is I've been through the tunnels, and they are. It, it, it's just the unknown, unknown, you know, not knowing where it's going. Yeah. Um, and I could just see you in that very first time being lowered into that tunnel where no one had gone before and just not knowing if there's snakes, if there are enemy, if there are, you know, the bungee sticks. Um, it, it's it, it's really heroic, very lonely work. Um, and... Um, it's none of this charge of the light brigade where everyone sees you off being the daring person. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that for you to have spearheaded that effort um, in that most important work, which has then been developed so that the infantry now is so much more effective, it's common operating procedure in all modern conflict to have the engineers at the front line to sensibly train them in line with the infantry so they are as good, but then they have to do the extra work. Um, you can feel very proud of your service um, and and the legacy you leave for the armed forces today. Mm. Thank you, Angus. Sandy, thank you for your time. Sandy McGregor retired from the Australian Army Reserves as a colonel. That was his chat with Angus Horden. Sandy is our first veteran interview on Life on the Line. During our season's run, we'll have a veteran interview out every Tuesday and bonus episodes on Fridays. To celebrate our launch this week, we have released two episodes today. Sandy was the first, but also check out this podcast feed for my conversation with RAAF veteran Sharon Bowne. Make sure you're subscribed through your podcast app to get all content. You can find us on social media too. We're Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and L-O-T-L pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.